Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 20. We had a, a five weeks off or so for um, Advent and New Year, but we're returning now. We're rounding the bend, so to speak, and we'll be, uh, the Lord willing, finishing up this important New Testament book around Easter, before Easter, shortly after Easter, and then... Um, Exciting things are planned after that. I'll keep to myself for now. You just have to stay tuned. Keep coming back. Acts 20 in the first 12 verses. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, Senapurus accompanied him, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed, set, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked, still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes on the subject of death. It's a well-known passage. That's where we get that wonderful line that as Christians, when we see um, another believer pass away, we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. And, and Paul says what, what that hope is. The hope is the resurrection. He says that the dead in Christ will rise. And then this is how he concludes that portion, 1 Thessalonians 4. With the theme of, the death and, of death and resurrection, he says this, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. According to Paul, the doctrine of the resurrection is of immense courage or comfort. And Luke agrees as we look at Acts chapter 20. In our passage, Luke uses that same word. Paul says, comfort one another. Luke uses that same word three times, or the same root word, uh, parakaleo, verse 1 and 2, if you look with me, um, both speak of Paul encouraging the church. Paul sent for the disciples after encouraging them, verse 1, verse 2, when he gone through the regions and given them much encouragement. And then he brings it back in verse 12, closing out this section with the comment that the church in Troas was, you see this very last line of verse 12, were not a little comforted. Comforted, same word as encouraged in verses 1 and 2, same word in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, parakaleo. Not a little comforted. 
For a long time, when I would read, Luke likes to use that kind of phrase. I always read that as a negative thing. Wow, they weren't even a little comforted, but really, this is Luke's backwards way of, of saying, no, they were actually extremely, tremendously, incredibly comforted. Not a little comforted, immensely comforted. And so, since this word stands at the beginning of chapter 20, Twice there, verse 1, verse 2, and then at the end of our section, verse 12, it serves as sort of bookend saying, anything you read in the middle, this is the theme. It's about comfort. It is about encouragement. Well, maybe some of you today need to be extremely, incredibly, tremendously comforted. And the apostle Paul and the apostle associate Luke would say, if you want to be extremely, tremendously, incredibly comforted, You need to know about the resurrection. That's where our encouragement comes from. So if you need that today, pay attention. This is a section in the book of Acts that is about encouraging the church. First, we're going to see why they needed that encouragement. And then we're going to see how they received it. Of course, since I've already noted it, it will center on the doctrine and the reality of the resurrection. But first, why do they need to be encouraged? Well, look at verse 1 with me. After the uproar ceased... Paul sent for the disciples and he encouraged them. Why did they need to be encouraged? It has something to do with this uproar, this life-threatening uproar, really, which is alluded to there. It was in Ephesus where Paul had been ministering. He'd been preaching, um, and he, that preaching had a profound influence on the society in Ephesus. Here was a region that was lost to the superstitions of idolatry, in particular the worship of Artemis the Greek goddess that symbolized sexual fertility, among other things. And Paul's preaching was so persuasive that many of the, we read this uh, a month and a half ago, many of the residents of the city brought forward their idols and their, their dark arts material, their books that had magical incantations and, and things like this, their pagan practices. They brought them and they threw them on a fire and they burned them. One silversmith named Demetrius was not pleased with this change in the city's religious affiliation. You can see that there in chapter 19 if you look back um, to verse 23. Uh, About that time there arose no little disturbance. There's that language again. He's not saying that there wasn't any disturbance. It was an incredible, extremely disturbing time. For a man named Demetrius, the silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business. There it is again. I don't know why he does this. Uh, These he gathered together with the workmen. And this is what he said. Men, you know that this is where we make our money. This is our livelihood, is people buying the things we make for the shrines of Artemis. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that the gods made with hands aren't gods at all. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. He says there's two concerns here. We're going to lose out on our our livelihood and Artemis will be um, not held in high regard. Which one do you think he's more concerned about? I'm imagining the first one. Not going to make any money if Paul keeps preaching this way. And so he stirs up these local artisans and he gets a riot going. And the mob, verse 28, they start chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is what we're all about. And the riot becomes so violent that Paul, who wants to jump in and try to quell the, the uproar, 
He is held back by his associates, by his friends. They say, you can't get involved with this. They're going to kill you. You need to step back. This is how out of control the riot is. And so it's a Roman official who finally quells the unrest. And he does this by insisting that this riot came about not because Paul did anything wrong, but because Demetrius, the silversmith from Ephesus, he stirred up this riot. Two things we learn from this harrowing scene there at the end of chapter 19 regarding Christians' engagement with the culture. First, notice that the decrease in idol worship in Ephesus did not come from the Christians banding together and boycotting the temple, working together to put in place policies, laws that would ban idolatry or worship at the Artemis temple. They didn't try to do any of that. What happened? Christians acted like Christians and created more Christians. The change that takes place, the decrease in the interest in idolatry at at Ephesus came from the fact that there were conversions. And when a great, many of the citizens became Christians, well, the practice of the city by, by consequence just changed almost naturally. They're not interested in these things anymore. Now, this is not to say that it's never appropriate to try to change the policies of our city or of our nation. But this is, this is the point. What will always be more effective and what will always be longer lasting is not to change a policy, but to change a heart. And that's what happens in Ephesus. Now, the second thing to note, first, is that the Christians didn't try to politicize this. They didn't try to make some official boycott. It just happened naturally because they're Christians. Second, note the resistance that that change is met with. Such is the hatred towards the Christian message and faith that things turn violent. But pay careful attention to how the Christian cause is vindicated. Verse 38 of chapter 19. We're just getting our bearings since we've been out of Acts for a while. We'll get to chapter 20 real soon. Verse 38, the town clerk, he's an official from Rome, says, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. In other words, there are procedures to follow here. You don't need to start a riot. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it will be settled in the regular assembly, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today. As a Roman official, he's saying, Ephesus, you belong to Rome, and if Rome hears about what's going on here, they're going to remove your privileges. This is dangerous. We need to follow the law here. Demetrius is causing the uproar. By not following the proper procedures, Paul didn't do anything wrong. This, Roman, this pagan official says Paul did nothing wrong. And Luke records this account as part of his apologetic to prove that followers of the way were no threat to society. And they were actually a benefit to it. Dennis Johnson writes this, Like our Lord, Christians need not and must not advance the cause of his kingdom by means of of the violence employed by our enemies. Our weapons are far stronger. We have divine power to dismantle every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive. And with such an arsenal, we can repay evil with calm kindness and forthright witness, watching God win his victory in his way. So now we come to chapter 20 and verse 1. Paul is determined not to allow that uproar that scary scene, that life-threatening riot, to negatively impact the growth and stability of the church. So he 
calls the disciples, the church, to come so he can encourage them. Isn't that interesting? Paul, the one whose life was, was most threatened, uh, is the one who takes it upon himself to proactively encourage the rest of the church. Now, in the next six verses, we read of Paul's travels to various churches where he continues to encourage each congregation in their various contexts. There weren't riots in every city, but each of these churches that Paul had previously planted, he's checking in on each of these churches, had faced a particular difficulty. Of course, there would be hardships trying to live as Christians in a pagan world. So verses 1 through 6, describing the return trip of Paul's final missionary journey. Indeed, this will be his final journey. It ends with him in in Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem he's sent to Rome where he'll eventually be executed. And danger and hardship meet Paul before the end of the trip as well. Luke is silent on this subject, but from reading the other epistles, we can kind of piece together what was going on during this time period. Uh, We know it's during this time that Paul was dealing with the pastoral, pastoral heartache, maybe headache too, that was the Corinthian dysfunction. You know, that church was messed up. That's during this time. In addition to that, Paul's first attempt to return to Jerusalem via Syria is thwarted. Why? Because there's an assassination attempt on his life. And so he wants to go to Jerusalem, probably to celebrate the Passover, and he can't do that. His plans are disrupted. And yet, even through these trials, physical, spiritual, emotional trials that Paul's experiencing, the Lord continually uses him to encourage the fledgling Christian church. And I want us to see that the way that that Luke frames the narrative, focusing on the encouragement of the church and not the hardship that Paul is going through, that's a way we should all frame our own suffering. As we suffer, do we exhibit the, the life that is found in Christ alone? Do we show others our hope is in Jesus? Do we encourage others through our affliction? Paul says this is what it's all about in 2 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And he says this, verse 8, we're afflicted in every way, he's talking about his apostolic ministry and his associates, we're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Why are we always going through these struggles? Why do, why do we not just give up? Because when the Christian endures suffering because he knows glory is on the other side, that is life for those who are witnessing this, who are watching this. We carry in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life-giving power of Jesus can also be displayed. So people can see we're relying on him. Verse 11. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus can be manifested in our mortal flesh. And here it is, verse 12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And that's, that's the way Luke frames this. He removes uh, a lot of the emphasis on the death that's 
Paul's dealing with to say, Paul is going through this for the life, for the encouragement, for the hope, the endurance of the churches. And that's the way we should frame our suffering. It's not about the, it's not about the struggle. It's about the opportunity to encourage others. That's a question for us then. As we suffer, do we exhibit the life that is found in Christ alone? Right? Even if my outer self is wasting away, do I believe I'm being renewed day by day? That will change your outlook on suffering and people will notice. Paul continues to encourage the church, not just through his preaching, but through his endurance. Now, because of the providential disruption, he can't get to Jerusalem, so they end up back in Macedonia. And there he reconnects with Luke, you'll notice in our passage, Acts 20, we switch to the first person plural, all of a sudden we language returns because Luke is back. Perhaps they connected in Philippi, which is in Macedonia, and that's where Luke was last left. And uh, they spend a week in Troas, verse 6. We came to them at Troas where we stayed seven days. And here we see another way in which the church is encouraged. Beyond the preaching of Paul, beyond the endurance of Paul, it's through the raising of Eutychus. Now, the first significant thing to notice about the story of Eutychus is when it happened. Look with me at verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread. Why is this significant? Well, this is actually the very first time we are told that the early church's practice was to meet not on Saturdays for worship, but on Sundays for worship. It's the first time we're told that in the scriptures. There are other places where we could deduce it, but here it's unambiguous. And how do we know that they're meeting for worship, though? Well, because of what they're doing. It says they gathered together to break bread. This isn't they came together to have a fellowship meal. It's they came together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, a staple of Christian worship. And we know that because it's not just any bread, but verse 11, which is much clearer, in the Greek it reads that Paul broke the bread. It doesn't say that in the English versions, right? Paul had gone up and had broken bread. No, he broke the bread. It's not just any bread, but the bread that constituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Uh, They were gathered together on the first day of the week to celebrate the Eucharist, to worship, uh, to hear God's word in Paul's preaching, and to see God's word in the Lord's Supper. This is the same thing that the apostles were doing back in Acts 2, verse 42. Do you remember that? It says that the early church committed themselves, or they dedicated, devoted themselves to, to four things. The apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread. Again, it's not just any bread. The bread and to the prayers. They devoted themselves to the elements of the worship service. Now, Acts 20 tells us that they devoted them to themselves to those things on a particular day. The first day of the week. And so, why do we worship on Sundays? Why are we here right now and why weren't we here yesterday? Well, part of the reason is because this is what the early church did. This is what they did. Well, then we ask, why did they do it? Why was there this change from the last day of the week to the first? And we come back to that great theme of comfort and encouragement. It's the resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was raised on the first day of the week. It was on Easter Sunday 
that Jesus stepped out of the grave and defeated sin and death once and for all. And every time we gather on Sundays, we say, this is what it's all about. Resurrection power. Resurrection hope. Resurrection reality. This is what constitutes the church. If we don't have Christ raised, we don't have nothing. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. We're above all others, most to be pitied, wasting our time. No, but if Christ is raised, it changes everything. And our faith is not in vain. Our faith is not futile. We worship on Sundays in part. There's a longer answer to this question. But in part, we worship on Sundays because Sunday is the day of resurrection. Sunday is the day that Jesus brought the new creation reality into this world. It's the day he stepped out of the tomb and said, this life with all of its death and decay, that's not the end of the story. There is something much better. And if you believe in me, I can take you there. We remind ourselves of that every week when we come together on this day. We remind ourselves that there is a new heavens, that there's a new earth that Christ has opened the way to. But the resurrection is, is not just something we celebrate on Sundays. We certainly do that. We celebrate the resurrection. But the resurrection, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, it's not something we just celebrate. It's something we share. We're not just celebrating that Christ did something amazing. No, we're rejoicing that that amazing thing he did, he lets us in on. We can share with him in his resurrection. Paul writes, again, quoting from 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That is to say, if all Christ is doing for you is, is sort of acting as a, a good teacher in this world, a, kind of like a, a, a security blanket in this life, if that's all he is for you, then you have a sad, pathetic life. But what does Jesus offer us? What does he Open up to us. Hope not in this life alone. Hope in the next life ultimately. Wouldn't that be a sad thing if Christ was just something to get us through this brief, earthly, momentary life, but then nothing after that. But because he's been raised and he shares that with us, then we have hope not only in this life, but in the next as well. Since he is raised, we will be raised. Do you need proof of that? Do you need encouragement? Well, then we look at Eutychus. Eutychus, this, this young boy whose name means good fortune, who unfortunately fell out a window and died when Paul would not shut up. Just going on and on and on. I want you all, this is not the point of this text, but I think one, one application that we could draw from it is to appreciate the fact that I've never preached till midnight. I know I go long sometimes, but never to midnight, okay? Um, and also appreciate the fact that we have glass in our windows and nobody's going to fall out. Um, he's sitting really in an opening in the wall. They call it a window, but really what it is, it's just a big gaping hole from floor to ceiling in the wall. Um, and he's in this unfortunate, the poor good fortune boy is in an unfortunate situation. It's late at night. The guest preacher, the Apostle Paul, is going uh, on far too long, and he, Eutychus, is getting sleepy. Notice the description of the room that, that Luke provides for us. Because it's night, they're lighting a lot of candles. What does that do? Well, the flames are um, removing oxygen 
from the room, which makes one sleepy. The heat also makes one sleepy. Uh, even though he's sitting near this ventilation, it's, it's not helping him enough. He's in an upper level. Heat rises. So basically, it's the perfect storm for somebody to fall asleep. And again, for, for good fortune boy, unfortunately, he's sitting in this opening in the wall. And so he dozes off, and he kind of overbalances, overcorrects, and he falls through the opening, and he perishes on the street outside. Some people have tried to say, well, he didn't really die. Maybe he just looked dead. Um, verse 9. Overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. That doesn't mean taken to mean dead. It was He was lifted up, and they said he was dead. They checked him. Remember who's writing this? Luke. What is he? He's a physician. Luke was confident enough to say he was dead. So we take Luke at his word. But just for a moment, Paul rushes outside, and he does something extraordinary. He leans over the boy, he embraces him, and he mimics the great act of both prophets, Elijah and Elisha, who did the same thing to the untimely deaths of sons that they had encountered. And they brought, they prayed to the Lord, and the Lord brought those boys to life, and they returned them to their bereaved mothers. And so, in the same way, Paul turns around to the church, and he returns this boy. He says, don't be afraid. His life is in him. What a word he says. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Isn't that our reaction to death? When we think about death, when we encounter death, we're afraid. We have fear. It's our natural response. But the gospel, the, the news that death has been defeated in Christ, removes fear. It's a remarkable scene. But here's what I want to suggest to you as we close. The most remarkable thing about this scene, remember it's midnight. The most remarkable thing about this scene isn't that Eutychus fell out a window that he died. It isn't even that the Apostle Paul rushed out and brought him back to life by God's power. The most remarkable thing about this scene is that at midnight, after all of that, they go back to church. Did you notice that? Verse 11. Don't be alarmed. His life is in him. Verse 11. And when Paul had gone up back into the house where they were worshiping, and broken the bread, that is, administered the Lord's Supper, he conversed with them a long while. He continued to preach after he'd already been preaching for hours. And now he preaches until daybreak, and then they departed. After the excitement of Eutychus's fall, death, and resurrection, Paul and the people, they return to their places, and he administers the supper and he preaches until dawn. And I, I'm, as I read this, I'm just thinking, what is going on? Why? There is not this response, well, from the people, well, look, Paul, you know, it's so great that you came into town. And you know we really appreciate your ministry. We've read your books and everything. And you're a great conference speaker. But, you know, you already killed one guy tonight. Don't you think maybe we should just call it quits for the evening? Nor do they, they give up worship in order to celebrate. That might be, I think, another reaction, right? This young boy they all love, he, he falls out the window, he dies, and then miraculously he's brought back to life. Wouldn't you think they'd all say, let's go out and let's celebrate this amazing deliverance from God. We should celebrate. Well, and then I realized, maybe that is exactly what they're doing. They are celebrating. Isn't that what worship is having seen a dead man come back to life by the power of God, the church has all the more reason 
to stay awake through these early hours to hear God speak to them through the word. This is their comfort. This is their encouragement. Now that they've seen what Paul has been preaching uh, brought to life literally before their eyes, they want more of it. God's word is their encouragement, a word that has been spoken into their hearts and has brought them from death to life, just like Eutychus, so that they can share in the resurrection. And they say, we want to hear more about this. This is what it's all about, and it's real. We're not wasting our time to be here all night. We're not wasting our time to be here all morning. In fact, there's no place we would rather be than in the presence of a God who raises dead people to life. And that's where we are right now, in the presence of a God who raises dead people to life. People like you and me, we heard it in Ephesians 2, we're dead in our sins. But God, but God, rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, when you realize that God's power can give you a new heart and one day will give you a new body, your only response will be to worship him. And when we know and when we believe that we are right now spiritually alive because of Jesus, that we will always be alive because of Jesus, and that one day we will be as alive as Jesus. When we know that and when we believe that, then I trust we will leave church today like that congregation in Troas, extremely, tremendously, and incredibly encouraged. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your power, your power that brings us from death to life. We pray, Lord, that we would look to you for our comfort and for our encouragement in this life as we await the resurrection, would we believe that the Spirit is a down payment now of, of resurrection glories that are soon to come? We thank you that you have spoken a life-giving word to us. We pray that we would receive it by faith today and that you would confirm that even as uh, you confirmed it to the church in Troas after hearing your word and, and seeing it miraculously in the resurrection of Eutychus, then they came and they experienced it tangibly. They tasted it. They touched it in the Lord's Supper. So we ask as we come to that meal now, you would work mightily in us that we would believe the things which we have just heard. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.